0: Radio. hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to episode one of Real People. Joining us for our inaugural show is Martin Reed, partner at Deloitte Digital Australia. Martin has just returned from two years as managing partner for Deloitte Digital Southeast Asia, based in Singapore. During that time, the team had a massive revenue and team growth, building from 12 staff to more than 200. Martin is a very clever guy with loads of interesting stories and wisdom to share. On topics as diverse as transformation, digital, parenting, user-centred design and how digital robots will make our lives better and worse. We hear Martin's story, starting back in the UK, and what it takes to make a difference in this ever-changing world. Thank you for tuning in. Real People is produced by Square Holes, a research agency founded at the end of 2004 and now working across Australia and beyond to provide deep clarity as to the reality of what real people believe and how they behave. Over the past 12 months, Square Holes has worked across regional and urban Australia and across the world from New Zealand to Canada, Thailand, Singapore, Africa, China, Europe and the US us some of the topics explored over the past 12 months by square holes are from birth to end of life school to adult education arts and entertainment mental health and wellbeing to green space traditional digital media start-up and established business ecosystems and much much more we are blessed to partner with human focused leaders who empower us to speak with customers citizens the rich poor old young content and vulnerable Real People builds on my 25 years conducting research and interviews with average and not so average people, as well as interviews with key leaders such as innovators, politicians, scientists, and experts. I have been lucky to meet with such wonderful and intelligent people and have such fascinating discussions, but these are often largely deciphered down to research findings, insightful quotes, statistics, etc., for reports. In this podcast, Real people will open up such conversations for people like you. The podcast will share interviews with academics, researchers, leading thinkers and other interesting people so we can better understand how to be a bit more empathetic to real people. Why do people think what they think and do what they do? I will also interview actual real people about their passions, beliefs, fears and behaviours. A great deal of planning, thinking and procrastination has gone into the show And we are excited about the deep and insightful interviews we have coming up. It is all quite thrilling, at least for me. And I hope you enjoy, subscribe and stay tuned. On a personal note, before I press play on this fascinating interview with Martin, yesterday I had one of those Facebook on this day memory notifications. It was reminding me that yesterday would have been my dad's birthday. My dad, Trevor Dunstone, died in 2010, aged 61. Yesterday he would have turned 70. And I'd just like to say, happy birthday, Dad. You are in our minds and you have inspired our future. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it!
1: wait okay now from
0: the beginning welcome martin and um thank you so much i'm i'm going to start off with a, a, a question um to just in terms of like what are the what are the poignant moments in your life that shape the man that you are today
1: that's um great question good good way to start and, and i can answer that quite easily because i did an exercise a few years ago and i was a little bit lost in my career not sure what I wanted to do. What my wife asked me to do was write down everything in my career that I was proud of to see if I could see themes between those things. Um, And I did. And the first thing I put down was, uh, as a young engineer, young industrial engineer, I I designed the way that the world's first memory seat pack was assembled. So I, I designed the assembly line, the number of operations, where people sat in that how they worked with their hands, before these things were done um, by uh, by robots. Uh, so that was the first thing. And what I enjoyed about that, it, the, it was the world's first memory seat pack. And I was um, involved in some change, and it was for Jaguar, so it was very exciting. When I looked at those other points in my career, they were all the first to do something. But the other uh, two things they had in common, it was they were transformational in nature. It, it, it made great change and great impact. Um, and it was based in technology. So what I came up with was this sense of what I love to do was to be first with transformational technology, and that's how I've lived my career. And at the point where I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, then it became very clear
0: I wanted to continue to be involved in being first with transformational technology. So, so what was one of the the, like the early... In terms of that, that first employer you had that was willing to, I guess, listen to your your is that's a pretty bold thing for I'm, I'm assuming somebody in their early 20s
1: yeah so so i think i was i was there at trw the company for a couple of years doing an apprenticeship um industrial engineering and i uh, that uh, i actually um got a job assembling switches which was a summer job bef- before i was intended to go to art school which is what i wanted to do back then and uh, uh we were um assembling uh switches for the ford fiesta my job was to solder a resistor to a led and then bend it in a little jig and snip a bit off of it and then it would go uh, into the body and somebody else would do the next and what i noticed on this table is that the operations were not balanced between the operators so that there was somebody always had too much to do and somebody always had too little to do so i went to the, the you know the manager and said if we change the operations we'll get a higher throughput of switches and he said oh it's nothing to do with me you go to the industrial engineering department i went down to the industrial engineering department knocked on the door told them the story they said we'll come and do a study they spent six weeks with a stopwatch standing over us doing a study and then they said lo and behold if we do these changes uh, and the the chap whose name was jim cook who was the you know the head of industrial engineering said um how did you know that and i said well it just made sense to me um and he said do you want a job and I said, well, how much does it pay and um, what is it? And he said, well, we're, you're doing an apprenticeship as an industrial engineer and we'll send you off to college and all these college things. So I, I said, yeah, sure, because it was paying more money and then that was never went to art college. Um, so that's, that's how I got into the industrial engineering department. But that um, first with transformational technology, that, that first thing, which was the switch for the Jaguar, the world's first memory seat pack. I think the company. I think we won that by accident. I don't think we we're expecting to win it. The job of assembling it. Um, we did cars for Ford Fiestas at the time. They're, you know, not certainly not a luxury brand. And I, I was the only person that was actually qualified to do that. I, I was qualified in MTM one and MTM two, which is basically an old-fashioned um, qualification that teaches you how. To work most effectively, assembling things with your hands. So it looks at what what each hand is doing at any point. Um, so I was the only one qualified in MTM one and MTM two. So when it comes to how do we, they literally gave me this memory seat pack and said we've got to build this. How many operators do we need to build it? Do we need one person or ten people? So the only person qualified to do that, even though at the time I was probably twenty twenty one, was me. Uh, they did bring in a contractor as well just to oversee, uh, and he was a good chap. And we worked well together. So i don 't know how much trust they had in me, but I don't think they had an enormous amount of um, enormous amount of leeway to choose anybody else, so I think I, it just fell to me, but it was very successful and again, when we did that, there was a, a number of firsts that we introduced uh, into the assembly process as well, so,
0: so how does someone twenty one twenty two have the guts to go to their manager and say we're going to do something transformational. Where does that come from?
1: So, so that without question, um, and I didn't see it as transformational, it just made sense, but my, uh, my father, you know, a very wise man, he basically taught us, my brothers and I, my two brothers and I, to, to question everything for ourselves and not take anything at face value. So if there was something on TV and you just regurgitated that, you go, why do you think that? I watched it on television, I heard somebody say it. And, and he would say, well, what are the facts? And he was—he believed very firmly that any position or you know, that you had on something or any opinion you had is because you've drawn inferences and conclusions from a set of facts. And you need to make sure that you understand the facts, not just listen to what somebody else says as well. So when you're armed like that and you've been brought up in that way, just because somebody says this is the way that we assemble this switch doesn't mean it's the right way. So, well, why do we do it this way? It's so a question, why do we do it this way? And, and how long ago did we set that up? Have we been doing it for five years like this? While well, the world has changed, tools has changed. Why? Why aren't we revisiting that? So I think that, that that sense of challenging is is not to be adversarial, but it's that question: Why do we do it this way, and is it the best way? Yeah.
0: Was just I was just brought up to, to, to question. So bred into you. Yeah, you absolutely. Yeah. So how, like just just thinking back, how, how does a parent do that? How does a parent breed into their children to question the status quo?
1: So I was taught to challenge by my father because he challenged what I said so when I would say something he would challenge it and say well why do you think that and so I think that's something I've really tried to give to my children especially in the world of social media with and fake facts and fake news um, where the story is often sensationalized or changed a little bit which has quite a quite an impact I always challenge them on that and say well why do you think that one and and there's there's a in this world, information is shared and duplicated and changed so much um, that, again, it's just so important to make sure that you you actually understand where those inferences conclusions come from. Are you dealing with evidence-based? Is it evidence-based? What is the evidence for that? So my kids will say something, and, and I'll go, oh, that's interesting. What? Why do you think that? What did you hear? It is, uh, there's a really good um, example recently is... There was uh, somebody who's notorious, he's in prison at the moment, that's kind of irrelevant, but he put the price of, they called it an AIDS drug, up from dollars to hundreds of dollars, and it is all AIDS drug, AIDS drug, AIDS drug. It actually wasn't. So the drug was for toxoplasmosis, which pregnant women get through cat feces. That's what the drug was actually for. It's just, it will kill somebody that has AIDS. So they made the focus on two. AIDS, rather than toxoplasmosis, which is the actual drug, so it was more for pregnant women, and so the press had sensationalised this. And when my kids start going, "Oh, they've put up the price of an AIDS drug to three," I say, "Well, okay. The facts are they put the price up, but who says it's an AIDS drug?" My kids are, oh, "I said so on the internet and on the telly and, the, and in the newspaper." And I said, "Well, actually, it's for treating toxoplasmosis, which is dangerous to two groups of people." those with AIDS or HIV, but actually more commonly pregnant ladies who get it from cat poop. So what they're doing is sensational, so you need the facts. And then they go off and read them and go,
0: oh, yeah, you were right, Dad. I'm going good, and now you're right too. Is it harder now in 2018 to train children to question the facts than maybe what it was? Or? No, I, I don't think
1: it's hard. It's, it's not about training it's not. It's not like I'm trying to train them, but instilling that... If we're going to make decisions, then we need to make sure those decisions are based on evidence, and we're comfortable that we're making the right decisions. So that hasn't changed. What has changed is that the the rate um, of information comes at us, or can be changed or replicated, uh, and the channels that it comes at us from is, is just amplifies the issue. So, for instance, I grew up watching telly, and we had a telephone and, uh, and, a, and a, you know and a television, and, and that was it. So. I was influenced by what my friends said, what my teacher said, what my parents said, and what I saw on television. And my kids today, the phone is actually hundreds of channels. It's Snapchat, it's Instagram, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's all of these feeds that bombard them with a view of the world that they want to see. And not only that, is that a lot of the algorithms on this software say what are the things that you like, and 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 it and it it, it customizes it to you. Whereas the old newspaper was. You know whether you like to view in there or not. It was a wider representative, but what we're getting is a newspaper of just the things we want to read or want to understand or we like. And I think that that's that's sort of dangerous for some kids. So the ability to challenge,
0: uh, you know, and and think and questions more important now than it was. So one of the other some some of the other key career steps or or life steps that took you from the UK to Australia.
1: Yeah. So um, so I, I moved. Um, I, I, you know, I went back to university, uh, open university, and did a co- programming course in UCSD Pascal. Uh, and and with a couple of friends, we started a software business, literally from his back bedroom. And in fact, it he didn't have a spare bedroom, so during the day it was an office, and at night time his, his twins slept <laughs> slept in there. So it's really odd when they came home from school, so they'd come up and jump on the bed when I am sitting in the corner with a computer. But we um, we, we we struck it quite lucky. Early on, and we we copied somebody else 's software it was a mrP two which is precast at ERP uh, and I only knew I only knew how to write software on PC, so we wrote the world 's by accident the world 's first mrP two system based on a PC network, and the company that we copied it from we showed it to, which is pretty stupid at the time, but they were fascinated, and they bought it off of us and they bought it off us because they knew that the future would be PC networks. Um, but they bought it office and they canned it. And the reason they canned it is they sold their software, but they also sold these IBM System 36s for a quarter of a million pounds at the same time. And a PC network would have been considerably cheaper, so they were missing out on their revenue. Um, but what it did is it gave us enough money to actually go and get a proper office and employ some people. Uh, we grew pretty quickly. Um, but as we grew and became, and we, 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 were I mean, luck plays an enormous part always. We uh, won a tender to write a piece of software that managed waste disposal, a waste disposal tip, and then they brought in the Green Bill uh, in the UK, which basically said that every tip had to know, had to be licensed, the kind of um, landfill that could go in there, uh, and they had to know exactly what was going into that and report on it to the government each month, and that's what our software did. So suddenly we were the only software company in the in the UK, that had that, and the twenty-six thousand dumps in the UK that wanted the software. So the software just flew off the shelves. So we had this period of massive growth, and I was the only one doing anything. I was, I was the, I was seeing the bank manager. I was looking after the billings and the debtors. I was the chief programmer. Looking, and uh, my what was your official role? Uh, my official well, it was to just to do everything. And so <laughs> we were we were it's young, a no title, a, no. young and a growing company. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was the COO, CFO, and the chief they were not programmers I was the programmer I'd written the software then we'd as we got bigger we'd employed more programmers so I was, I was in effect the chief information officer and the CFO as well they didn't want to touch the finances and see the bank manager so the two people I joined the company with who were more consultants they were doing they didn't have any consulting to do anymore and we were a software company and uh, so we parted ways because they were spending all the money, and I was earning it all. That's the way I thought. Um, so I, I I I was headhunted by another company. They said, "We're just about to do a management buyout. and We're looking for somebody that can manage, uh, you know, these twenty-two um, programmers we've got." So I said, "Yes." I t- tried to use that as leverage against my partners, and they were having not a bar of it. So I, I ended up leaving. Uh, p software, it was called. It was sold last year. It still still exists, sold last year, 38 million pounds. So they did very well out of out of that. Um, and, and I went to a, uh, a company called Harper Group, and we did a management buyout of the software that they had generated. They'd created a very early Salesforce automation software, which was a precursor uh, to CRM. And they, they'd built the software for themselves, for their own salespeople. And then a, a chap called Chris... Matthias, who was the CEO of the Harper Group, was very smart enough to realize that the software was more interesting than the company. So he made himself the CEO of what we called Conduit Communications. He did a management buyout, and the five of us did a management buyout of that in the UK. That was a very, again, a whirlwind ride, a very quickly growing company. Um, and then uh, in 1999, I met my wife, a South Australian girl and uh, Conduit Communications wasn't ready to open an office in... We'd open an office in, in Boston and New York, and I was out running that, but they, they didn't want to open an Australian office, so I made the choice of walking away from the business and coming here to South Australia um, just, just before the turn of the century, 1999, and uh, had to start my career again because most of the work that we'd been doing by that stage uh, was we were building control... Uh, and analytic systems for investment banks by that stage. So enormous amounts of money, very profitable, complex banking systems driven by the changes in the industry, the crash of bearings bank, those kind of things. So uh, so I came here with a, a very pr- impressive CV that would get me a job in any major city around the world and I'd come to Adelaide and wouldn't get me a job, unfortunately. So, uh, So I needed to find somebody to sponsor my 457 visa and thankfully... Uh, a local chap, Grant Hawksworth, who was then the state manager of Comtech, which is now Dimension Data, gave me my first job here. And it was really as a uh, effectively as a project manager. And then we went on to open um, what what was called on their online business here in South Australia. So I did that just for over a year. Uh, I'm very grateful for that start that, that Grant gave me here. But then um, I was picked up by Deloitte, a Deloitte partner to come and work for us as a director. I got a director role. I wanted to go in as partner. They said you don't have the local network. Went as director, made partners shortly after, and have been now with Deloitte pretty much since 2001. Um, And that's been a wild ride in itself. So again, that was a a massive punctuation in my career, going from working in London, Boston, New York, to South Australia, a very different market, uh, very different types of customers, uh, and all the things that I'd learned, I, I had to relearn. When I came here, it's a very relationship base market not a transactional market i didn't know anybody I didn't go to the right school here and all those other things that you that you face okay. um that i had to uh you know i, had to, I had to sort of reinvent myself a bit when i came here and you've spent the last couple of years
0: in singapore
1: yeah so um i i um i i was being this first with transformational technology i've always been trying to push deloitte in that so deloitte digital although it's a global brand now it's second largest digital agency in the world there was sort of two partners that were very passionate about digital technologies um Pete Williams who convinced Deloitte to buy Eclipse and myself who convinced Deloitte to buy Chimo which was a local company and those were joined together to become Eclipse then Deloitte Online and then Deloitte Digital um and so I've always been in the the, the digital area of Deloitte and pushing it um and I went from looking after digital in Adelaide to looking after regional Australia which is everywhere but um, Sydney and Melbourne uh, and then I spent the last couple of years uh, setting up Deloitte Digital for Southeast Asia based in Singapore. Um, it was a very very small office there but the joint venture between our firm and the Southeast Asian firm when I got there it was about 12 people. It's a very different market in Singapore so when I left exactly two years later we had about 150, 150 people so we went from 12 to 150 in, in two years and we would have been substantially bigger if we could have found the right kind of skills. Certainly finding the work was much easier than finding the
0: people. Okay. What are some of the lessons you learned from your time in Singapore? Different different culture to Adelaide and the UK, I'm assuming?
1: Yeah. So um, Asian culture, completely different. I've worked US, UK, Australia, all very similar Western-type businesses to get on. A very different way of doing business, um, very different structures. Um, much more structured and process oriented um uh the the values are different um your your communication styles are very different Uh, so you have to learn especially Australians who are quite direct you have to be learn. you have to learn not to be quite so direct because the message you have to focus on what is the message you're trying to deliver it then rather you know rather than how because we just deliver it straight out there and that, that that doesn't hit the spot Um, So I had to learn a whole new way of communicating to to get on and be successful. Uh, It's very easy to upset my fellow partners by being too brash and too big of a know-it-all when I didn't know the culture or the way that business was done there. So it it was a substantial learning exercise uh, around how to deal with my sort of fellow partners, but also with clients and the way things are done there and learning that. So it it was very different.
0: Yeah. Okay. So it's been great to hear um, your curiosity from a from a young lad and how that's you've questioned the status quo and uh, evidence base that you referred to. What what do you see as the major cultural shifts, trends, the way in which people live, do what they do, um, have changed? Uh, maybe other than let's take digital out of the equation, because obviously that's an obvious one. But um, so let's take what out. Let's take digital out of the equation. Yeah. But, other than that.
1: So it's it's really difficult because digital technologies, our phones, social media, the onslaught of that has changed. That is the, the biggest thing that's making changing culture at the moment and the way that we are using human psychology and building it into... Um, Can to, you expand
0: to, on to, that a bit further?
1: Yeah, so... Um, m- most 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 of the things that we don't think about, we can be very easily influenced. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a field of study called um, choice architecture, which is part of human behavioural psychology that looks at how do we make choices. And when you understand the way that people make choices, you can present things in them, present things in a way that gets the outcome that you want rather than the outcome. And so we are we can be made to make choices... Without even realising it, because of the way we think, um, and and that's become an area for me where I say, at what point is it useful for me to be? So I buy the right thing, and what point is it useful for you? Because you're making me buy something that I wouldn't have otherwise, but I feel like I've got a, a bargain. So there's um, the more we understand about human psychology and build it into the experiences we get on technology, it's great because we can we get. Um, you know, from a business point of view, you get better outcomes, but there's a point at which we have to say, "Is it is it still ethical?" And well, I think we're just in the very early days of yeah.
0: understanding that. In, in our business, we refer to a term, like, a term that we, we um, use, choice anxiety. That, that whether it's information or whether it's products or services, that people just, wouldn't go into a restaurant. There's there's so much choice that people just want the choice easier and i guess that yeah. fits into choice architecture. choice architecture absolutely as well.
1: yeah so there's there's some really great experiments called the jam jar experiments and what they did is they stuck up a video camera and they put tables with different varieties of jam on there and each day they would change how many varieties of jam and they what they wanted to do is say how does the the, the, the number of choices that we've got um fit in with how much jam we buy uh, and what they realised is the, the, the larger the amount of choice of jams you know, I've got 10 different types of jams the longer people would spend um, deliberating about which jam to buy and the less jam they would buy so they worked out that 3 to sort of 5 is the so if you've got 3 to 5 different types of jam, then people spend less time there and buy more so you get a higher input so these type of experiments about how we make choices and decisions when we are um, you know, when we're given them uh, is used in, in design. So how many menu items do I give you? How many types of jam or how many different types of lollies? And there's also, there's something called conditioning for complexity. So the, the best way to describe this is that um, if you are given a large number of choices to make, you are less likely to make them unless you're conditioned to make them. And the, the example I like to give is if you were going to do a car configurator online, for instance, if the first question i ask you is which colour do you want, and there's 20 colours there, you, you are much less likely to go through because you can't make that decision. But if the first question is automatic or manual, it's very easy for you to make that. It's a choice of two. And the next one is you know, interior, and there's four interiors. And the next one is options, and there's 10 options. By the time you ask for 18 colours, I've been conditioned to make a complex choice. And you get much more people doing it. So the order in which we um, give people choices can get us, the designers of this software, better outcomes as well. So that can be argued both ways. We can argue that that um, you know uh, makes it easier for you to make a complex decision by the way that we present the information. Or it can be argued that well, maybe I didn't really want a red car in the first place, and I've been tricked into.
0: <laughs> so it comes down to it, it. is it making it easier for the the customer or the consumer, or, or is there a manipulation? A manipulation involved, exactly. It's an exactly. interesting one. Is do you think it, are you sensing there's more conversation around that, if we want of be a better term, user experience, or whether user experience is making it better for the user or better for the hmm. business? I guess there nice needs to sort of be a nice sweet spot in the middle where it's better for both, but well, where's the balance sitting now? So
1: if you're a marketer uh, and you do a marketing campaign, you're measured on your success, Right. Uh, and so response rates become really important, or closure rates, um, and, and you're measured on those. So everybody always wants more, better, you know, faster, and so that doesn't necessarily drive you into the most most ethical way of getting those. It's just what works and what what gets more or closure. So it's a it's, it's a difficult and complex area. I was asked. I gave a lecture late last year at um, National University of Singapore. Um, and, and they asked exactly that question, is how ethical are you know are computer marketers? And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know. Mm. Um, but it's, um, are we now able to build techniques into software that get people to do things they might not have done either? Yes, we can do that. Should we? It's a question for mm. ethics professors
0: yeah. um, to answer. Does, does, does the question, like, I'm not trying to out any of your clients or the likes but does the question i guess start off how do we sell more widgets or does it come back to how do we make it easier for customers to buy more about M-
1: most, most are coming at it from the how do we sell more widgets yeah. but um we come at it from well you need to understand your customers in a in a in, in a quantitative way but also a deep qualitative way um uh, and we always cover it that way because it's it's not how do you sell more widgets it's how do you understand that customer um in you know, an empathetic way, what is it like to be that customer? So then you go, is, do they need a widget? Or is the widget the right type of widget? Is the question before, how do I sell more of them? Um, so in terms of what we say at Deloitte Digital now, it's it's completely customer-centric design. And we we don't start with how to sell more widgets. That's not the right question to ask. It's should you be selling widgets? Or is that the
0: best product or service so so do you find in that do you find you're having a obviously a strategic conversation with an existing or or um potential client and you almost need to press pause and say well can we just take one step back
1: Mm. to work out to do now sometimes um sometimes client says we you know we have an online store and we've got a conversion rate of x and we want it to be y and they sell a wide range of prod- products and they're, they're suitable, you know. And then you go, yeah, okay, here are here are some things that will improve that. Your photographs are rubbish. Better photographs will increase, you know. So there's some advice that you can give, but it depends what they are. And if we talk about digital transformation, which is less about just having an online store, clients, you know, often you need to get them, you know, I, I've, I've had banks in Indonesia going, we're going to create an online bank. And I go, okay, why? And who is it for? what products and services oh well we'll just copy our normal bank and just put it online and who's going to sign up for it and where are they and is it just for indonesia or is it southeast asia and what is you know what's the focus is it on getting deposits or and then they go oh don't know and say well wh- why don't we think a bit um a, you know about those markets and think more about the people in those mm. markets so um, we learned some really great stuff working in Thailand where um, people in Thailand work a lot with cash and they keep their physical receipts as, as the evidence of their money. I chuck mine in the bin, I don't care. But um, So the physical receipts were important to them and we, we designed an online banking app um, and when we did our user testing... The electronic-looking receipt wasn't good enough. Just the fact that there was a receipt with the numbers on there, a a record, they wanted it to look like a receipt. So we actually had to render something that looked like a real receipt for them, and then they loved it. And then use of the app went up.
0: So even if that, yeah, so that receipt was still digital, it just looked like a real printed receipt.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, And so for them, that was the experience they wanted was more akin to collecting their receipts so they knew where their money was gone. Just having the information on the phone wasn't enough, wasn't enough for them. So if it looked like a receipt, it felt like a receipt. So it's really about the way they felt about the use of that technology as opposed to
0: what it did. Mm. I wonder if part of the pressure that big organisations, big corporates have globally is that the board requires KPIs and the reality is the KPIs are... Revenue based and profitability based and sales based and And, they have and, a lot, and I'm assuming yeah. with an organisation like that, there, there's a high level of stress and pressure to achieve achieve those. It's a bit like whether it's a big bank or whether it's a big uh, any FMCG. It must be a hard one to kind of separate away from that reality of we need to get more sales and more revenue and more profitability to actually coming back to uh, what and, the user
1: wants. And uh, most of the world thinks that growth is good. Mm. and we, we just assume that growth is a good thing um, but if you're an artisan food producer there's only so much raw materials of the quality you can get so growth wouldn't be good in, in that respect but you're right most of the business world is it's about growth it's about being bigger last year um, than you, you were last year and that does come with lots of corporate pressures on everybody that is charging that organisation with finding that growth or finding that new customer base etc cetera, etc cetera. but even if you say that's a good thing it's still much easier to do with the right kind of qualitative and quantitative research Mm. understanding your customers you're much more likely to get a product or service that fits their needs Uh, and if you make the experience seamless um, and I, i talk about frictionless if you reduce friction in of transactions so it's very easy to deal with and you're the easiest to deal with and you've got the right products and services at the right price then um
0: then then you should be able to against a set of competitors out outperform them mm. so it's it's really getting the, the the organization to pause and, and think away from those KPIs and you be able to sell a case of why taking a a deeper look at the consumer
1: is yeah. worthwhile
0: is that is that right is yeah it, um i mean and there must be a trust in your your it must be a need to i guess your credibility to be able to convince them that that's a worthwhile thing to do but there's an investment
1: absolutely and and track track record in in any consulting is 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 paramount to reputation so you have to be able to show where your tangible value is that you can that you can impart to your clients and why Um, it's you know it's it it, it is really important so if you go in and you've not done it before and you've just read something and so i've read if we do this it doesn't really have the impact of saying I've walked these through three clients in similar industries with similar issues. I've walked them through this, and these are the results that we've had. This is what we did. This is why we did it, and this is how we did it. Um, then that gives people, you know, people are spending money on. Uh, it's a, mm. uh, you know, certainly the top end of town like we are. We're not cheap either, so we have to. We have to really be
0: good yeah. as well. But, but, but I guess it's the, the case that you must be putting forward is that ultimately that is driving driving growth or. Helping to achieve their KPIs is—is is that fair? Or well,
1: um, we, we help. What we're really doing is trying to help the clients achieve the objectives that they're trying to achieve, whether that be growth or entering a new market or, or, or whatever it is. So, so it's true to that. But we're we are not. You know, I wouldn't say oh, I'm a growth specialist. This is I'm all about growing. I'm a digital specialist. I'm a user experience specialist. Um, service design specialist that's what deloitte digital is and it's less about it's less about digital you need to make the digital disappear Um, but it's much more about being user-centered and understanding the users Um, when you're doing you know service design customer journey mapping you're doing these things that they should be done for the purpose of giving a better experience to you know, the recipient of those those yeah. services about giving a better experience. So that isn't necessarily about growth. It's about a better experience, and more and more clients are saying, "I want to improve my customer experience." Now they're probably doing that because they believe if they get that better, they'll get more clients. So there's probably growth aspirations behind it, but um, but it's much more about the experience. I um, I, I was get, given a talk um, a couple of years ago about the changing role of the CIO. Um, and I made the point that the most successful CIOs of the future would be those that gave the best experience to the employees. It wasn't about the bits of technology. It was what's the seamless experience that I have. Uh, and you see, we tend to think of IT, oh, my computer's broken, I need IT. It's when I don't need my computer, I can do everything on my phone and it never breaks, so I don't think about the technology. That's when that's when IT works.
0: So that's about the great experience that you have with it. So. Mm. Which one made that point? One, one term that's come up in recent years that is pinned back to the likes of fast growth of Uber and Airbnb and, and um, other juggernauts uh, like like that is growth hacking. What do you think of the term growth hacking?
1: So um, we do we do growth hacking at um, at Deloitte. We have me- methods for growth hacking. Um, I, I, I think it's. It's, a, it's, a, it's another tool in the toolbox if it's done right, that in the right circumstances for the right clients, um, you know, c- can work. We've, you know, I've been involved in, in a, quite a few over the last few years. Um, I, I also, I mean, always a bit cynical. Um, what I tend to, see, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years, so I tend to see that similar approaches come back into fashion and they're called something else um so and we might use a different way of doing it but it's 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 similar approaches so growth hacking um it's i I really i'm not a massive fan of when we use a buzzword like that so growth hacking Mm -hmm. you know it's like everybody's a customer journey map whatever it's what's really important is what are we doing and why are we doing it what and what, what what is what are we trying to achieve and make sure that we have the it the best way and of course consulting companies all consulting companies want to have a repeatable process a method that they've got which is their own ip but we all end up doing it actually in very similar ways so i could go to one of my competitors and that you know that would have the same type of tools get get us the same outcome just like software development methodologies they all you know they're, they're all different but they're all they're all sort of the same mm. um so growth hacking as a you know say well what what are we doing what what are we trying to do and if if that is how do i rapidly find uh, a, a new market uh, that we can put our products and services and get it out to them that is that is that a valid part of a strategy yes it is how do we do it great let's work out how we do it is uh you know it, i would prefer to tailor to each client and market depending on what they're doing mm-hmm. as well but but there's some level of cringe
0: when you hear the word or like uh, look to as a consultant jargon that's used i to... i i
1: you know i i mean i can't avoid jargon as a consultant but i i, I usually cringe when there's when everybody jumps on a, a particular bandwagon with a the latest the, the latest thing uh, and people do these things just because it's the newest thing to do um and often i i ask I have clients that will regurgitate stuff that they've heard from consultants, the same stuff And I'll go, what do you mean by that? You know, like, oh, we're going to have, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going for, we're going to have an agile organisation. Agile, 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 you know, we're going to do growth hacking. I said, what do you mean by uh, agile organisation? What do you you actually mean by that? They go, oh, you know, we're using modern scrum teams of, I said, but what are you trying to achieve? So um so i'm not a a massive fan of the bandwagon jargon as such um i love great tools and technologies and techniques i love great tools there's some enduring um you know things that we can do that are that are excellent and they're excellent now they always will be but i think as practitioners we we need to um we need to keep a, a a very close view on our clients and what they're trying to achieve and make sure that we're really helping them achieve that rather than just doing something because it's trendy to do at the moment.
0: Okay. So you must see and do a lot of research, So you mentioned before, qualitative Mm. and quantitative. What are some of the trends you're seeing? Let's bring tech into it as well. You've talked about some already, but what are some of the key cultural shifts, consumer shifts? so in years.
1: so we are seeing customer centricity become the most important thing over the last couple of years again as if it's the first time it's ever happened when we first came out with salesforce automation tools and we put laptops in salespeople with a bit of software on there then everything was customer central we talked about customer centricity cr it was the birth of crm 20 years ago customer centricity and then we, and then we we forgot about that and things like big data and uh, you know analytics and other things have, uh, have caught our attention and now it's back to the customer but in reality it's it's always been about the customer it's just it's more trendy to put everything in in terms of the customer again now so um
0: yeah we've got Let's this state as a given what, what else yeah. other than being customer centric
1: so um i i'm seeing uh, a, a a broader acceptance of qualitative research uh, an acceptance that qualitative research is valuable because thanks to the likes of big data we've gone um you know quant, quantitative quant, quant 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 we've got more and more data big data we can we can understand anything but um uh, and people you know the, what we used to refer to as like research groups or those kind of things now people are again thinking that and realizing that they are important that you if you get Eight or twelve of the right people, and ask the right questions in the right way, that you get the same results as twelve thousand surveys. Right. And so we, um, I am seeing companies now appreciate deep qualitative research again. Um, uh, I employed my first ethnographer about six or seven years ago. Seven years, it'd be seven years in September, and at the time, nobody in Deloitte knew what an ethnographer was. I only knew about it because I I did it. I did the d school training and that they, they were ethnographers who run that and i was I was blown away by the insights that they got from empathy, understanding how people feel about things rather than what they want um, so i 'm definitely seeing clients understand the requirement for yeah. balancing um, qu- quantitative with deep qualitative research so as well. If
0: you took a helicopter view of all the research you must see, what are some of the trends you 're seeing? In terms of how people are behaving what they believe how they interact with each other what what do you sort of see the things so
1: um people people's patience um is 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 less than it's ever been um so if i think about you know how long somebody will spend reading something or trying to understand something it's shorter and shorter so attention spans are, are are shrinking and shrinking um as a child i would sit there through six 30 second adverts happily waiting for my show to start again uh and today it's annoyance when a you know a five second ad appears up and you can't wait for five four three do you want to to um to flip past it um uh, and I, i see that um with my clients clients and i see that in my clients so the, the, the old days of let's do something big and enormous and it takes a long time. No, we don't have patience for that. Mm-hmm. We want to launch a business. We don't want it, it to take two years. How can we do it in, in six months? Mm-hmm. We need a new product. How do we understand that? So, uh, and that's reflected in the move to uh, let's, let's, let's become more agile. Let's run agile type. Uh, and it's gone from not building software, but uh, how do we run our business in a more agile
0: fashion? So, so the, the same trends that impact... Uh, People, on this, people going shopping or people are, at home watching the telly same, are the same trends that you're the, finding in terms of how people do business. Exactly devices. right. So those, yeah. those
1: leaders of those organisations are experiencing the, the, the change in the world mm-hmm. too. Um, Jack Welsh has got a great um, saying, uh, and I won't be able to quote it exactly, but it's something like, when the outside world moves faster than the inside world, then mm-hmm. your business is dead. And everybody in the world is experiencing that now because technological change is so rapid. That governments companies can't um, keep up with it, but we're all recipients of it. We've all got our smartphone, and we all know the great experience I can get. I, you know, uh, example, our our vacuum died two days ago, so that evening I went onto Appliances Online, bought a new vacuum. It was delivered the next day. It's like under twenty four hours. I got it. I didn't have to go and look at it. It was excellent. So that kind of I want a new vacuum. I've got one, and my expectation is now. So my expectations has changed. I didn't have to wait till Saturday to go to the shops to look at ten to buy it, stick it in the back of the car, bring, bring it home. I've got it instantly, um, and so we 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 all experience that changing life. But then, it's not easier or quicker to get my boat license. Yeah, so yeah. I get frustrated yeah. with government. It's not easier or quicker to do business with some, you know, with some of traditional companies. So I'm frustrated with that, and I'm the CEO of a company, and I go why does it take us six days to turn around alone and approve it? Why can't it, why can't we approve it today on the spot? Why can't we do that? So that ability of how do we deliver something faster, better, cheaper, everybody wants, everybody experiences what that feels like. So be, you know, customers want to deliver that too.
0: So there's expectations have been ratcheted up and up. Mm. Um, so it's hard to absolutely right. Yeah. And then it, 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 what you're saying is that the, the expectations then become the norm. So if, one organisation, for example, government or, or whoever else, um, doesn't have quick response, easy, simple, then um, then it, it, it then, yeah. then it misses expectations yeah. and, it, and it forms disappointment. Where five, ten years ago, that would have been been fine. One, one of the one I pick, on, pick up on a point that you mentioned before just about that whole idea of. Um, and there's so many dis- distractions. Are you finding that people, some people, are trying to find ways to switch off? So they almost say the counter going almost like I, I can't switch off my social. How do I switch off? Like Apple's introducing ways of being able to monitor your mm. your, your phone usage and, and, and then there's uh, a few uh, apps coming right. up.
1: And exactly. So Apple. How much time have you spent on your smartphone? Because the major investors in Apple said to Apple, what the biggest threat to Apple is the backlash uh, against all the negative um you know our phones are great but there's all these negative studies that say they negatively impact children's communication and you know our you know our, our marriages are failing because we're we're not talking to each other and all these other these other things so that was pressure from their shareholders to say what are you doing about that um is am i seeing people willing to let go of their smartphone devices and spend no, not really i't you know people seem to be spending more and more time. I think that you know, like as a family at dinner time, the phones don 't come out, and if they come out, they 're face down, and there 's no clicky clicky on the table A like this glowing face your, your family yeah exactly yeah, okay. uh, and uh, and there 's a lot of people I know that, that that do that that, that yeah. kind of thing, but um, I, I think we 're at a saturation point of how much we use these devices and how much we 're bombarded by them playing a game, watching a video, uh, you know, my kids will sit there with their laptop, their phone, the TV will be on. They'll be watching the TV program, listening to music, playing on their phone and watching a YouTube clip all at the same time. You know, like, I, I will be on my phone and the TV at the same time. But mm-hmm. um, So I think we've got a saturation point with that. Um, and I, I think, you know, we're at the early days of understanding the negative points of these, because we all we all love it. We all you know love to be c- continually connected to everything, but we're just at the early days of understanding what some of the negative impacts are. Mm-hmm. So I think over the next ten years, uh, next five to ten years, when we understand that at a much greater level, we'll be able to educate people. It's like smoking was trendy in the fifties, mm-hmm. right? And we all we really loved it because it you know oh it helps me bring up phlegm and it melts makes me lose weight. Well, not actually, it kills you it's not it's not good to smoke i'm not quite saying that a smartphone device is that but i think we're just at the very early stages of realizing some of the negative effects of them and and will there be legislation there's calls to ban phones in schools there's evidence that says children that use their phones in class to do research have better education outcomes so I think these, the you know, the, the evidence and facts needs to be gathered, and the right people need to make decisions about how we how we govern these. And then, of course, there's self discipline that we need to we need to think about. But for self discipline, we need the right information. You know, is it bad for kids or not to have yeah. a smartphone? I don't know. Does yeah. does anybody know? Has there have been enough studies done on it? If there's enough studies that say actually you shouldn't give a kid a smartphone because it, you know, they they get worse spelling grammar outcomes were social outcomes if you give them to them before 12 or something and it's evidence-based then you go great i can make a decision That's about right. that but at the moment
0: i don't think we have enough so we're in an interesting time going. is it an epidemic and more interventions are required or is this just the way people live i look at our our own children and see how much they use it and like our, yeah. our oldest is 14 and a half and you're going to look and see how she interacts with a phone and social, and she's very good at. We understand she's very good at switching off mm. when she goes to bed and doesn't um, doesn't uh, continue on into the evening. But but it is. It's, I guess it's changing the way in which people uh, have communities and and mm. deal with each other. So it's really. It's that, I guess that's an interesting one. Or yeah, and 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 I guess whose role is it to to intervene? Is it is it about owning it from an individual level or is it, is it about government needing to, um, to, to take that intervention? I, I, always,
1: I always think that there always needs to be several levels of controls around our lives. We put in laws to keep us safe from harm. So the government plays a role in that. So with technology, there should be rules in place, and there's already rules in place around child exploitation and bullying and those kind of things which should be in place. Would there be other rules in place? Would they? Would I want the government to tell to tell me that my child cannot have a smartphone uh, until they're 12? No, I would not like the government to impose that on me. But is it the government's role to help um, with education around the positive and negative of? kids having smartphone devices at those ages yes so i can make an informed choice but just like i can choose not to wear a bike helmet although it might be a law i can choose not to because i don't you know i want the wind in my hair but, you know i think that as individuals we need to be able to make a certain level of choices for ourselves about our families on what you know what we
0: do or, or what and we decide what role do you see the likes of apple and samsung and the digital companies in terms of do
1: you know i uh I, I personally feel that their job is to give us the technology and it's our job to choose whether we like it or not. Um, so uh, I, I, exp- I you know I, I don't think that they... Them- this is my personal feeling. I don't think that they have some corporate social responsibility to make sure that we don't use their devices. I think that they need to build the best devices that they can that become the most useful for us. I think if there are a possible negative effects from them... I think it's somebody else's job. It's us to self govern or for governments to make recommendations or, or, or something else. But um you know, just because I can have Tinder on my so it, there's evidence suggests that Tinder is responsible for a third of American divorces you know, last year. Now, do I think that it is then Apple's job not to put Tinder on there? No, I don't think it is. I think it's an individual's job if they're married, not not to use T- not to use tinder you can't blame apple you know you can't blame apple or tinder for divorces you've got to blame individuals and you know for the choices that they make so um, i think device manufacturers should make the best devices that they should they should put the best software that they should on there that makes us want to use it and that's somebody else's job to work out whether what's the appropriate use of that for any given person at any given time be that government legislation or recommendation or are uh, you know self-imposed family or decisions that that, that you, you make for yourself
0: that's excellent w- where are we heading what, what's the what the, what are the trends il- illustrating in terms of either mm. the technologists and what they will be building or in terms of what users mm. are demanding or just the way culture is going mm-hmm. and where the next big thing will come from so
1: um there's so things like um Programmatic automation is is real and happening and r- removing jobs. But voice as an interface is completely workable, and we haven't quite seen it to the extent of the U.S. have yet. But the Amazon Alexa and all the other devices, um, they work and they're convenient. Artificial intelligence really works. There's a couple of things that are worth looking at at the moment is Google Duplex, which is Google Assistant. Uh, they did a demonstration just a few weeks ago of how Google Assistant can phone up a restaurant and make a booking for you. And it's it, it, it's, it's it's scarily human-like. It has, um, ah, uh, yes. So it puts all those in so it sounds like a real person and it can deal with very complex. So if you look at that, that is a computer um, doing that. And then if you look at um, IBM Debate, which has just come out in the last couple of days, IBM's has... Um, won or drew with a human debating usual debate rules that you don't know the subject you're given a subject you're given a minute to prep then you've got to argue for or against computer um argued very successfully made quotes made jokes in there quite astonishing when you look at that the 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 power um and complexity that we need to do things that only humans used to is, is here right here today uh Voice as an interface. Last year, we were doing lots of experiments with clients running pilots. This year is year of production, so you're seeing these things in production. And and the thing about voice and interface is the thing that the trend that concerns me the most, because you know, twenty years ago there was a software called Dragon Translate which would do a reasonable job of translating. Well, now um, not only can the computer understand what you're saying. Uh, it, it, it has Microsoft. Um, their, um, their artificial intelligence has better comprehension than the average human being now, against the um, against the uh, uh, the Cambridge standard. So the scary thing for me is that if I turn to my Amazon Alexa and go, "Amazon, can you order me a pair of shoes?" Right now, Amazon are very clever. They have a whole whole ton of private labels that they sell through the amazon portal Um, and some of them they've got a coffee that's called happy belly and it says when you if you go into amazon type in happy belly coffee it says this is an amazon product so you know it's amazon product but it's a a white label they have a number of different shoe brands and you don't know that they are from amazon so if i was say alexa i need a pair of brown leather oxford brogues with goodyear welted soles which i could easily see a lot of English people asking for uh, and uh, you would get a pair delivered and they go $53 oh, and you go yeah buy them please deliver them and you'll get those shoes uh, and I didn't ask by brand then did I so now is Amazon is already the biggest company in the world an enormous and Jeff, is, and Jeff is the most wealthiest guy in the world it's going to now choose an Amazon product to give me rather than somebody else's so the importance of brand unless I said I would like a pair of R.M. Williams boots. So what what concerns me about some of these technologies is how some of these bigger companies just continue to exploit their position of knowing everything about you you know having all the data about you having the ability to execute a product if Google became a bank wow they'd be a better bank than any of the local banks so i think some of the the, the scary things that are ahead of us over the next 10 years it's certainly uh, really around uh, what I talk about is beyond glass, which is, you know, we're used to a, a, a glass screen or a glass touch interface. But um, when voice comes into it, um, and and the computers are good enough at it now to, to be human enough with artificial intelligence and you know natural language processing. Um, and so I think when I look at the trends, people are investing in that. All of the big tech companies have bought tons of artificial uh, intelligence companies. They're doubling down on that you know this voice comprehension all of these things that that say how do i remove the computer i just i just need a speaker somewhere that that can hear and listen to me um and then i can transact in in the way i want so what we've done is um spend a lot of time thinking about use cases for for voice and what does it work and run lots of experiments with our clients about what what are good interfaces for voice what does work and what doesn't work what will i need my phone for and what will i be able to do hands-free with an Alexa or Google Assistant on my phone or or Siri or whatever else.
0: So does that roll into, we don't need to fear the robots?
1: I think we do. But I think we we need to fear the robots in the way that um, people during the Industrial Revolution needed to to fear industry. Um, Or... When we had the you know the information superhighway, and w- w- I was an industrial engineer, uh, and when I first started working at that company, TRW did not have an MRP system, so it did all production planning manually. So we had production planners. We also, we also had toolmakers, which were men that cut blocks of metal to make tools for plastic injection moulding in you know plastic injection molding or strip forming of metal or whatever else it was and at that time we got an mrp system which is manufacturing resource planning so all those production planners weren't needed anymore and we bought a cnc machine and so what happened to all those tool makers and production planners well actually the old um the old tool makers stayed around and said oh, i'm gonna or oh, once there's no more tools i'm going to retire and the young ones said i'm going to become a cad cam operator and i, I instead of doing it with my hands I'll I'll do it on the computer and let the machine do it and so I I, you know one of my good friends went from being a tool maker to a CAD CAM operator and I witnessed that happen so I think that will there be a shift in jobs absolutely computer um, programmatic automation at the moment is excellent I was working with a large um, Indonesian um, oil and gas company and they have 80 people that really just get an invoice um, pull up the invoice they open their ERP system and they enter that into the system and match it against the purchase order that's all, that's all they do we 80 people full-time doing that um three days there's a some piece of software called um automation anywhere three days of work those 80 people didn't have a job anymore now should we fear that well uh, the companies go that's great i've saved a lot of money but they didn't make anybody redundant by the way so should we fear that in a way we should but what we should be thinking about is what are the new roles that will be created in a new economy that didn't exist today so if i'm a, you know if if you look at me I'm a, I'm a consultant that specializes in digital transformation when i was at school there was no internet there what digital didn't exist so there will be replacement jobs that come and what kind of jobs will they be
0: well i don't know yeah. but, but as individuals do we are, are we are we too trusting They look at Cambridge Analytics, and that um, obviously became a big fire, and you see all the organisations changing their privacy um, codes and emailing them through, uh, which Mm -hmm. raised Mm -hmm. concerns of maybe they weren't protecting our privacy as much as uh, as we thought they were. So there was a trust that um, the convenience outweighs maybe privacy breaches. Is that the same kind of thinking maybe around robots, that we just need to be cautiously optimistic about um, the role they might play or well so if we're talking about robots as in software robots
1: software that automates something that a human could be doing it's I don't think we we, we think about privacy in the same way as our private information being given to a, another company um, so Cambridge Analytica uh, it, it, you know it, they blew up over Trump but they also they did exactly the same thing for Brexit campaign, which was another surprise as well, which people don't tend to talk about. And, and they, they've crumbled as an organisation. But I'm, I was actually talking just last week to an organisation that's, that's almost identical. But what they do is they help, um, they help consumer companies uh, target people that will want to buy their stuff. And they use all the same types of sources. And they've built these enormous databases scraped off of social media to profile who's most like you so you say here's a product and they go these are the people that are most likely to buy it and they will make that connection um for you and this you know they've just received 20 million dollars in in startup funding it's quite a new company it's quite a they've got clients on board already so do we worry about our privacy in that instance i'm like yeah but there are plenty of tools that you know that say this is what Google knows about you or this is what Facebook knows about you. But again, um, it, it's it's an exchange of value, right? Um, it, it's an exchange of value and a trust. So you let me use Facebook um, and I can see pictures of my nieces in the UK and watch them grow up and I'm happy with that. And in return, you show me adverts and I can ignore them. That's okay. But then you take that information and use it for a different purpose. I might not be happy about it. Now, the purpose of that information and what they can do with it is a bit we don't understand and we don't understand it because you use this software you've got to read this you know 200 pages of legalese which we can't which we can't read or understand so we just click agree right Uh, but hidden in those terms and conditions are the things that trip trip us up Um, and having a plain English um, privacy agreement um, would be much better but these companies like to cover themselves with expensive lawyers who who, who write you know a long thing so i think that there's a lot to be said for um having much greater clarity on what that information will be used for so we can still make that decision but uh we don't really know what we're making that decision on we don't really know so facebook could they could um programmatically take every embarrassing photo that you've ever posted which they own by the way you don't actually own that photo anymore uh and they could create a book of jason dunstone's embarrassing moments and they could send you an e-copy of that and they could say um, pay me ten dollars or i'll send a copy of this to all of your friends legally they can do that you can't actually stop them doing that would they do it probably not but is there somebody else they share that data with that could do that well who knows so i i think when we think about privacy we're happy to to exchange private information and value exchange, I'll give you something, I'll get something back. The tricky part is then, what are you going to do with it, and what can you do with it, and what you'd like to do with it, and that's where we need the clarity. Mm,
0: okay. So, so where are we heading? You talked, you talked about we, the um, jobs will change because there'll be robots to, to do people's jobs, and the way we, we live will change. So, what, what what are the what are the ways in which we will we live will change moving forward?
1: So. I I I can see and I'm not I'm not a futurist but I you know if we look at footfall traffic dropping to town centers um I, I imagine that we will we still plan and design shops and and housing estates and areas in the same way we we have done for for years uh, and we've only changed it when the car came along, right? Oh, we need to think about cars and roundabouts and traffic and where do people put their cars and those kind of things. But we still design them the same way. But um, people don't go to the shops in the same way that they did. Um, more and more is being tracked online, so footfall traffic. So the way we design our cities and our spaces, I imagine, will will change greatly. I, I did a lot of work for a company um, that that design ho- design and build, amongst other things, shopping malls and hotels. And they have completely rethought the way that a hotel would be designed in a, in a, in a modern era. Uh, and there's a focus on a co-working spaces. Uh, digit, you know, how do they support with 10 gig digital in the, um, and how the rooms are smaller because you don't have to work in your room because they've got areas where you can co-work. And so it's a business hotel of the future. And they spend a lot of time you know, trying to understand business users. And when you look at how they're designing that hotel, which is, it's not, not actually been launched yet. Um, you go, that's actually really, really clever and really different. And would I use it as a business user? Yes, I would. Would it be as nice as the grand park? Hyatt? I'm not sure, but would I try, yes. So I, I can see how everything we do gets redesigned because what happens is the world changes, but we don't actually change. So, Uber came along and the taxi companies didn't change. Now they're starting to. They're going, oh, we need a taxi app. Um, And so I think as the companies start to, you know, we change, our behaviours change, then companies change to fit that, and then we start to rethink everything. Uh, And I I often, uh, quite a provocative question I'll ask my clients is, is if you started your business today, would it look the same as it is now? Would you have the same buildings? With the same staff in the same places, or given all the wonderful technology we've got and broadband and you know clever devices, and would you still have an office?
0: Mm. So, so who, who drives change? So, moving forward, is it, is it the consultants such as yourself? Is it is it commercial? Is it government? Is it individuals? Where does the change come from? So,
1: um, um, all of the above, not not quite so much from government. Government's more about control government's also can you explain that
0: government's more about control
1: yeah so um so i'll give you an example if there were five companies that could issue you a driving license i would go which one would i go to now if they're all competing they have to make sure that i'm a competent driver they have to make sure that i've passed a certain number of tests you know theory tests and practical tests And and how are they going to do that? They're all going to change the way they do that and become competitive. And I I will have choice about what, you know, the best way of passing my driving test. Um, But I don't, because the only person that that can issue a driving licence is the state government. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they're a monopoly, and there's no impetus to change. So they will give me the, you know, they might change the controls that they have around it. How many hours of experience do you need before you go from L's to P's, etc.? Change controls and they don 't actually change the, the experience much of it, so governments uh, in, in that respect don't don't change things very much. Software vendors change lots of things they set the agenda they build new stuff into their software and say this is what you need to be doing. They do that often by inventing or spending time you know with software software
0: companies
1: so all, all kinds of software companies. companies so if you if you look about how we market. Like the likes of Adobe and Sitecore, with their experienced marketing platforms, you look at people that go out and invent new software that does new things and new, you know offers new things. Is those vendors say now we have a new capability or a new way of doing something, and they will they will sell that and and companies will buy that and that will set trends for the kinds of things that you can. So that's interesting. Do so so building up
0: those capabilities internally, which allow them to do um, extensions of their software that they weren't able to offer before. That benefits the user, yeah okay
1: yeah yeah, so um so I think that change comes from um, from from everywhere, but the way I see the change is that um, it 's like a punctuated equilibrium, and there 's certain technologies that usher in enormous amounts of change and, and some that um, are more incremental, and so if you look at the first what I think of the first wave. Um, where we started putting computers into offices and and factories that that changed completely the way that we did things and it was, it was, it was, it was it's a very big change and then when everybody 's got that stuff the, then there 's equilibrium it 's incremental change, and then the internet comes out, and then that 's a big change right because I, I can sell online, I can reach new markets, and I can change my business model. That's a big change. And then we've got mobile, again, big change. I, I've, I've, I'm, my business is in somebody's pocket 24-7. How do I change the way I think about what I deliver uh, to them? Um, and so I think that there's, there, there are te- technolog- technological breakthroughs or inventions that create very large amounts of change and then we have incremental change on them. So I think that the current wave of what I refer to as exponential technologies – you know, artificial intelligence, voice, programmatic, um, all of those type technologies, they will have a very profound effect on the way we do everything over the next 10 years, in fact, the next 20. Um, do we know what they all are yet? No. Will we all be talking into an Alexa-type box to order everything in the future? I'm not sure. I'm sure that we'll be doing some of it because uh it's it's sort of there's a lots of things are working mm-hmm. uh in the states and we 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 see ev- evidence for this but no doubt pretty much everything about our lives will change mm-hmm. over the next 20 years so look at the advent of all autonomous cars and it's i love it every time that they go here's a tesla that has crashed and it's burst into flames you go well every car that crashes bursts into flames it's full of petrol and they go oh the batteries are bad because they catch fire and they go well petrol's bad and it catches fire too mm-hmm. it's uh, there was a rule in uh, in in america when henry t ford brought out the ford and for first time that, and they put in a law this was fear um that if you were driving your car on a highway and you saw a horse you had to dismantle your car and leave it at the side of the road until the <laughs> horse had passed right that's cause some stupid person not understanding technology but fear of it right um, so will things change for sure do we need to dismantle our cars no not not probably not. so
0: technology companies likely will drive the change and are the technology mm. companies uh, coming with a user understanding is it oh yeah are they kind of balancing their oh, See a user need and then the the technology or the capabilities get to the point where we can actually deliver that? Is yeah that, is that fair is
1: absolutely um there's they, they, any technology company wants to sell their stuff. So they can only sell their stuff by knowing the, the needs and requirements or, or giving a competitive advantage or something of the, the customers that they expect to buy. So when people build software, it's, it's built for somebody and they they, they try and understand those, those needs. But um, even the software today is, if you look at, um, say, multivariate testing, which is, in web terms... I'll give you. I will give people different versions of a web page and see which one achieves the objectives I want the most. Um, and using that, which is a, a sort of a quantitative approach, um, Google feeds up to you. Um, uh, so the, the experience you get from Google is tailored just for you. And so if we both typed in Karl Marx. You would get a completely different set of results than I would, and the, the idea of I need to be top on Google is for who? Mm. For who? Yeah. What's the intent? Uh, and uh, you know, and, and what is the relevance mm. of the search term to the person? And there's so much, so many digital fingerprints that we leave behind that we most of us are not aware of. Um, when Google serves something up to you, it's looking at 200 what they call signals, which are pieces of information that tell them something about you. A lot of it's gathered from the cookies on our machine and. A lot of us don't understand what they are, but there's lots of digital fingerprints that we leave behind that um, that, that that tell a lot about the user of that that computer and the, the account that's logged into. Um, that can be used for all kinds of things, for tailoring something, or
0: you know, with every opportunity comes a threat. You know, we can be used for good or, or not for good. I think we're we'll sort of we're we're all, almost done. So a question that I'll ask is to sort of close this off, and then I'll I'll get some closing um, sort of commentary, but. With two two enterprises that you believe are nailing the transformational technology, uh, one big and one small. So, when you say
1: tr- transformational, mean that they are transforming themselves. Yeah,
0: they're they're, they're, they're driving. No, no I'd say they're oh. driving change for humans. Yeah.
1: So, um, most. Most disruption comes from outside of the traditional industry. So typical industry leaders aren't very good at disrupting themselves, so the change comes from out, And that's why we see Uber wasn't a taxi company that thought that it would it would innovate on the service delivery angle. Um, so uh, any of the large emerging tech companies that do something faster, better, cheaper, um, tend to be changing the way, and a lot of it is around... Uh, platforms um
0: is there an organization you can think of that, that you're you're watching and they're doing it well
1: so i i think i think any of the disruptors are, that, that we know about are doing it well airbnb are doing what they do well uber are doing what they do well so all those typical companies that we that we think about um i think what's more interesting is how many how many traditional companies are doing a good job of of transforming themselves to meet the the new economies, the Jack Welsh, you know, outside world who who's who's doing it, I I consistently find that um, large organisations struggle. The if I look to somebody in Australia, Telstra did a remarkable job of if you think about their business they owned, the copper in the ground, and that's where they came from, making a telephone call uh, and then they were faced with a national broadband network that they that they didn't own uh, and so although they had a burning platform they say well how do we turn ourselves into a media giant, a content giant you know or, or, what what is our business and how do we offer it um, they did, they've done an amazing job of transforming themselves with I mean most transformation these days is with technology
0: they've done a, a, a really excellent job mm. so the key for a business who does drive change is it culture? It's is absolutely
1: it, culture yeah. and it's right from the top as well I hear companies go oh we want to change, we want to change we want to change but the, it, that it must, it's cultural uh, the, the need or the desire to change it must come from the top and it must be infused Deloitte themselves did a very good job of change and our, um, our previous CEO um, really had this sense of the professional services world was changing and he took an unprecedented role. He went to Stanford d school um, and learned about design thinking, and realised it was so valuable. He went to Stanford and said, "I want you to design a um, a special course in design thinking that we're going to send some of our people to. It needs to be a residential. It needs to run for several days. It needs to be homework before, uh, and it needs to. Um, and we're going to send two hundred people from Deloitte on that." that training course is very expensive exercise so we had 200 deloitte staff which is very traditional at the time you know cons- consulting audit tax um learning design thinking and the only point was to get people to learn design thinking skills so they could think differently about the world and then go back into their service lines and create change no mandate no you must invent new services but just uh, and just by doing that it, it um it it Created an enormous amount of change within the organization, and not only that you had two hundred passionate people that came back going wow like we've got we 've got you know tools and techniques that are just incredible ways of thinking differently about the things we so when it comes to reinventing ourselves, you know we 're really well equipped to do it, and that created an enormous buzz around that. and that was actually um, distilled in in a corporate strategy which at the time, I can talk about it now because it 's not a current one was um, to be and different was part of that. And different, um, and and different. What does it mean? And you got the big four, all the same, having that and different approach. Mm. Um, you know, was was brought right from the top, the CEO downwards, uh, and it um, it created an enormous period of, of change and growth. In fact, through the global financial crisis, we were the only big four in
0: Australia to grow, all the others shrunk. Yeah. So. Okay. So so top top down. Sometimes sometimes what we. We can find in um, different organisations is uh, it's that the, the top has a particular perspective and really want innovation and change, and they can even have an entrepreneurial mindset and a, an innovation mindset or or desire to have that as a culture of their organisation. But something gets lost between the top and even the the middle, top, middle and, and bottom, the and yeah. the the, um, yeah. the the bottom up kind of side. Mm-hmm. I, what do you do to have it so it's not just rhetoric from the top? So like you had um, innovation and change.
1: So, so um, change means breaking something to do something new. So there's processes in your organisation that probably slow you down. You don't even realise it. Um, so we see change not happening uh, all the time, despite the willingness to it, and it usually comes down to somebody has the job of putting and monitoring some controls in place and that that job has never changed. Those controls are never changed. Or somebody has a set of KPIs and those KPIs are not changed. So if you're not willing to change people's KPIs and you're not willing to change the kind of kind of controls you've got in place, you won't get a different outcome. I was dealing with a company that wanted to rapidly increase the number of loans that they wrote online and yet they weren't willing to change their risk appetite or approach. So we suggested you could do risk based pricing. So higher interest rates for more risky people. They their 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 risk controls were so tight that they had no chance of approving more loans unless they took a different approach. We weren't saying be more risky, we were saying hmm, approve loans but with a higher interest rate and they weren't willing to do it. So no matter how much you want change, you have to be willing to think about the controls that you have in place in your organization and think about the KPIs and the way that you, you, you measure people. Uh, and you see, if you if if you measure people in the same way you did before you started your innovation journey, you, they're going to behave in the same way. Because at the end of the day, when you have your annual appraisal, and we all have one, um, did I achieve my KPIs? So you can say you need to be innovative, Martin, uh, unless, unless you say, uh, and what Deloitte did is say that 30% of revenue must come from services that did not exist three years ago. So you start to measure it, and then you go, oh, God, I'm going to be measured on that. I'd better change then. But if you don't change that KPI, it's easier for me to just continue.
0: Thank you so much, Martin. That was a really wonderful uh, d- dis- discussion. Uh, how can people find you if you want them to find you, or how can they see oh, you in a social media context? Yeah, so... Twitter, I'm, LinkedIn, uh, li- LinkedIn, uh,
1: easy to find, Martin Reed, R-E-A-D, uh, on on LinkedIn, I, I'm not that active on Twitter anymore. But M H uh, Read R E A D on Twitter, but uh, yeah, LinkedIn is probably the, uh, the best way to find me. And I, I I always accept the LinkedIn unless it says that they a recruitment consultant. You could always try and offer me a job or offer me candidates. Which <laughs> so I, <laughs> so if you've got the title recruitment consultant, I might not accept it, but, but for everybody else, I will. But N- N- Martin Reed Deloitte Digital, and you'll find me on LinkedIn very easily. Okay, thank you, thank you, Jason.
0: Thanks so much, Martin, and thank you for listening. It really does mean a lot to have an audience for Episode 1. Always a bit of a nerve-wracking or trepidatious moment doing the first of anything. So the idea that we've got it up, it's out, and we have an audience is huge. We have great interviews coming up. Already have one in the can and just finalising editing, that will be out hopefully within the next week or less. So stay tuned. Other interviews already scheduled and ready to be recorded and launched include a neurologist, global trend watcher and an explorer. So that is all very exciting. We're finding ourselves... Keeping our eye out for people who would be really great to interview. So this is all very exciting to, to get over the bump and and keep it moving. If you enjoyed the show, please do not forget to tell your friends, family, podcast lovers, workmates, etc. And subscribe to Real People via iTunes or your favourite podcast platform more information on this podcast, future podcasts, and our blog, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog. We write a weekly email and blog topics from user-centred design to market research to innovation to entrepreneurialism. We try to have sometimes insightful and often random sometimes amusing articles to get people thinking, a bit like the podcast. And certainly it has been a habitual discipline that we have very much enjoyed from a creative side, but just having it so of sharing our thoughts and conceptualizing our thoughts. So please, we encourage you to check it out. You can also follow me, Jason Dunstone, on Twitter at Jason Dunstone or your favourite social media. Thank you to all involved. Thank you to Andrew Morissetti of Rooster Radio for your production and podcasting advice and support. Please download and check out Rooster Radio if you are not already Thank you to Jordan and Phil from Square Holes. Thank you to the whole team. Thank you again for listening. Thank you, Martin, and have a great day.